Welcome to How to Enjoy Experimental Film and part two of our conversation with filmmaker Lynn Sachs. In the previous episode, we discussed some of the background to Lynn's works, but here I wanted to ask some more specific questions about particular films and how Lynn approaches her subjects. At the time of this recording, you can watch Lynn's critically acclaimed film about a father who, exclusively on the Criterion channel. We're also going to discuss the film's Investigation of a Flame, States of Unbelonging, and Which Way is East, which are available on YouTube, as well as Your Day is My Night, which you can rent from the New York Filmmakers Co-op Vimeo page. For some time, Lynn has found herself drawn to certain elements in history, so let's hear a little bit about how these interests entered into Lynn's work. You know, I spent about 10 years being drawn to 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 the detritus of war, but not so much that I was going to go to you know be a war photographer. And I called the, that series of films "I'm Not a War Photographer." Like I defined, it was sort of like being agnostic. I don't know what I believe. I don't know quite how to define my face. So that, or even an atheist, you know. So I just was kind of setting myself apart from something that is a way of being in, in, in this media, um, in this field. So uh, I'm not, that's not my obsession right now, but it was definitely something that consumed me. And so I made um, my film, The Last Happy Day. I, I don't know if you saw yeah. that. Yeah. This is the one about the, the, the Hungarian. Yes. Yeah. I, this famous distant cousin. <laughs> but I was also very interested in how, for example, the Vietnam War had affected me, but not affected me. It's very particular to being American. Americans tend to think that they're away from the hotspot. World War II, you all were in the midst of it, and we were, and you know, we were removed. And so even as a Jewish woman, my family has been over here for several generations. So I think my family felt more identified with being American than being the, the target of so much hate during yeah. the Holocaust. So I wanted to try to understand what that the Holocaust meant. And a big part of my childhood was the Vietnam War, but how do you get past it being just two words or something on TV? or statistics and so though that was um, an excuse or a license for trying to reckon with that war um and then and i'm very interested in politics so i think politics like if you're talking about gender politics or you're talking about power dynamics so i made a film i'm mentioning films i don't expect you to have seen them all called investigation of a flame well so those are all like a group of films that i that I'm, I made, not with the intention of making films about war at all, but they just kept happening. And then after a decade of doing that, I said, oh, wow, you spend a lot of time thinking about these things. Yeah. Maybe this is like a-, a There's state, States of Unbelonging is in there as well. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and did you see that one too? Yeah, that one was painful because <laughs> I was looking at the Israel-Palestine stuff on the news at the time um, and, you know, just seeing all of that happening at the same time. And I thought, I need to see this one because apart from anything, it 
it's potentially a different perspective. You know, I, I I thought, oh, we've got a filmmaker with a Jewish background. I live in a very heavily Palestinian area. Mm-hmm. So a lot of our view is from, from this side. But I was really, I thought I need to see this because it could be something that I disagree with quite strongly if I watch it, not in an aggressive way or anything. Well, that's why, that's why I... I was actually kind of nervous about you might yeah. think exactly what you said. Yeah, but, exactly. But the the way that the way that it's framed, I think, was really nice that you have it from this character who's stuck in the middle of it and just saying, look, it's all wrong, whichever whichever way you're looking at it. So well, I appreciate your saying that. In fact, I'll, I have a little anecdote. I wanted to show it in Israel, Palestine, because I had made it there, mm. and also because near Zach's who'd worked on it with me was there and, and it would give him a chance to have his community see it. So I sent it to, when I say sent it, I mean, I sent a tape. It wasn't like you could send a link back no. even in 2006. So I sent a tape to Jerusalem for the film festival. And then I called the, off, the film festival office and I said, oh, did you receive it? And the person who answered the phone was the office manager. And he said, well, I'm not sure what's it about. <laughs> so I, I said, it's about, that's what people always say. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I started, it's about a woman who was killed in a terrorist act. She lived on the West Bank. He said, oh no, they won't like it. And I said, what? And she said, people here are very much, who run this festival, the curators, are very left-wing, they're very sympathetic to the Palestinians, they won't like that. And I said, well, I, you haven't seen it. Yeah. And he was very critical of them. He was the yeah. office manager. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I said, well, oh, okay, well, I hope they'll watch it anyway. Not that, it's not mm-hmm. that, but I hope that, and they did take it. And so I was able to go and, you know, actually when we were there, which was 2006, a war broke out in, Lebanon, so it's kind of, I thought it was very scary, but but I did have a chance to meet Chantal Ackerman, so. and she made actually she made a film in Tel Aviv at the same time you might have seen called um, Laba, meaning down there, amazing film, and you can see a clip of it online. But um, it she wanted to make a film about Israel Palestine, but she got there and she was so daunted by it that she made the whole film inside her apartment, looking out at this window, just like, you know, looking at the building, the whole thing. Yeah. Lines move and you see, and it just works brilliantly because it, it articulates fear and it articulates like the way we frame things. And it actually speaks, I think speaks really interestingly to like what we all went through with this. As someone who is far from a documentary film expert, I tend to hold with the notion that the best documentaries are films that make you interested in something of which you were either previously unaware or in which you considered yourself uninterested. The former was certainly true of my first viewing of Lynn's film Investigation of a Flame, a genuinely investigative work about the Catonsville 9 case in which a group of Catholic activists burned a number of draft files in protest over the Vietnam War. In 1967, Father Philip Berrigan and Tom Lewis raided the Baltimore City Custom House and poured blood on draft records. Then, in 1968, the collective of nine activists went to the Catonsville office of the Selective Service System, threw hundreds of draft records into bins, took them into the parking lot of the building and set them alight using homemade napalm. 
The act of civil disobedience resulted in jail sentences for many of the participants, some having gone underground. Father Daniel Berrigan made a statement containing the following words. Our apologies, good friends, for the fracture of good order, the burning of paper instead of children. Sax's film includes interviews with six of the Catonsville Nine, and captures much of the mood of the group without ever resorting to reconstructions of their actions and emphasising the humanity of those concerned. They are not viewed as radicals as much as concerned ordinary citizens who were motivated to take a stand against something they believed was inhumane and morally wrong. So I had never heard of the Catonsville Nine. Oh, thank you for seeing that film. Um, so, yeah, I'm not surprised. Exactly, and um, I mean, it probably isn't is underreported where you are. It's unheard of here. Um, and so, is there a sense in which you're you're drawn to the underreported? I was drawn to in that movie um, to the to the notion of being a, a citizen of a country and taking a risk, but not taking a risk as a soldier, but taking a risk that, that, that articulated how much something mattered to you. Um, and I was interested in, and it's also a kind of alternative vision of, of Catholicism and of faith in general. I, I should actually mention that my grandparents, paternal grandparents, um, converted to Catholicism, and that was not the kind of Catholicism that they were keen on, which was a liberation theology kind of Catholicism and, and, a, and a commitment to, to those people who are not represented or the poor, you could say. And um, so I, I just, I, I, I actually made the film because I lived in the town where it happened, and I had two young children, and I became um, this was outside of Baltimore, Maryland. And I just became obsessed with this story that nobody wanted to talk about, that it happened blocks from my house. And um, this idea of civil disobedience was just so compelling to me. And in a way, it kind of works with the smallness because civil disobedience is also often done in this performative and small way to create a, a conceit or a metaphor for people to ponder, like, you know, we will burn papers and that is comparable to burning bodies. Like it's a, dis, again, it's a distillation yeah. of thought. So I hadn't thought about it till that way till you, you asked about small things. Okay. But, you know, they, they weren't trying to burn down the Federal Bureau of Investigation, you know, the FBI. Oh. They were trying to do something that was, symbolic let's say and um yeah and i thought the action itself actually gave a um and a kind of to, to to the idea of of theater and of even if i thought something about what they did was like performance art I don't, i'm saying that in the most respectful way i love performance art let's do something that will captivate imaginations let's not go you know kill the politicians we hate but do something that's maybe more conceptually rigorous and maybe will have more than meaning like i really love in that film when this woman said to me well 
that meant we would, we were sitting at dinner tables and we were talking about what that action meant. And I, I love that, like the way that people would sit and talk about a movie they just saw, but then it yeah. had more resonance. I very definitely see myself as a criminal. I think if we're serious about changing the society, that's how we have to see ourselves. We're all out on bail, and let's all stay out. A clip there from Investigation of a Flame, the first of Lynn Sachs's films I saw, and which I urge you all to check out on YouTube. As you've just heard, the shadow of the Vietnam War hovers over a number of Lin's films, and that is as true of Investigation of a Flame as it is of the Vietnam shot work Which Way is East, which shows the citizens of Vietnam as they live at the time of shooting, whilst acknowledging the perspective of the filmmaker as outsider. At one point, when Lin herself becomes sick, her sister Dana films Lin nude and silhouetted against a window, hinting heavily at the world beyond the single room, looking through a frame within a frame. The moment in um, in in which way is east way where you become ill and you're you're in bed. So we just get this long sustained shot looking out of a window and and getting this whole idea of you know here's something that's happening personally. Here's the world beyond the window. Yeah, um, and actually a couple of things happen there. One is that I walk by, but it's my sil- silhouette and I'm nude. It's the only shot in the film that my sister shot, but I set it up because I'm in it. And it was during a time when my family would make a joke. No matter what you're doing, you always appear nude. (laughs) Yeah, there's even a shot right after that scene of a, um, in in which way is these, of um, an older woman's face. Just, it it has this like iconic older woman look. And my sister wipes that away. She's like, that's not just an iconic woman and a big idea about aging in a time of war. That's like an old woman who's kind of difficult. She's a difficult grandmother. She's a crabby grandma. Yeah. Crabby grandmother, yeah. And um, so I, I like that, that Dana refuted my attempt to like make something archetypal. And so I included that. Back in Hanoi, we show my friend Hua the photographs we just picked up from the one-hour developer. She sifts through all the famous sites of Vietnam and then stops suddenly at a picture Lin took. Where did your sister take this picture? That's my grandmother. I've never introduced you to her. She's not a very nice person, always complaining. Once the photo lost its anonymity, it lost its meaning. It wasn't the long-suffering face of Vietnam anymore, the trophy face a tourist loves to capture. It was just Hua's crabby grandmother. How do you respond to material that you film? And do you find things that you feel, I can't show that, um, alongside things that that you do put in the piece? Well, all of film about a fatherhood, all of it. I was constantly debating with myself whether I could take that risk, whether it was a form of 
Maybe it was a form of punishment to me or to my dad or to my siblings. Also, I was debating whether the material was ugly, like ugly content-wise, but ugly. I was critical of my aesthetic. Like I thought this is really, I was lazy. I was thinking about everything else, but what I was, you know, but my my sense of the image and I made compromises and I had to shoot at night and it's all grainy and you know all the like it's funny with um uh which way is east I had only 40 minutes of film for a month well I was very careful I had my light meter and you know oh the light okay I'm gonna measure for the way the light comes here and then I'm gonna shoot my 28 seconds you know how bow like then I'm gonna wait and I'm not gonna I'll do this deserves half a roll of three minutes of film and 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 if you should, with a film about a father who a lot of it's shot in film, but a lot of it's shot in video. And so I just like, there's a shot where I put a camera down on a, do you know what a lazy Susan is? Yeah. You know, like spin it around so I can eat dinner. Like, so kind of pedestrian, as they say. <laughs> and it ends, ended up kind of working that shot. But at first I, I just dismissed everything, everything. So both for content and form. In the case of films such as Which Way is East and the Israel-Palestine-based and remarkably sensitive and impartial States of Unbelonging, one significant instigating factor is an act of violence. It is, however, an act of violence that remains unseen, as the discussions of the events surrounding this act are quite potent enough to linger in the mind of the viewer as the experience of the film unfolds. States of Unbelonging takes as its focus the aftermath of the murder of a Jewish woman who was a critic of the Israel-Palestine conflict and the broader questions it raises. I mean, I could definitely say that in shooting state, States of Unbelonging, that the premise of making it at all, which is about, it's, it starts off with violence. Like the film couldn't have happened without violence. So I think that I've, I've actually tried to, and again, you've asked a question I haven't thought about exactly, but quite a lot of films of mine try to um, reckon with, with not just images of violence, but how you move out of a, of a violent um, kind of transgression and then move into something not maybe not offer something better but examine that i think so I, you know it just occurred to me as you were thinking as you were speaking about that um that each film of yours that i've seen feels like a series of reverberations you know in 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 uh, your day is my night kind of literally because there's literally it deals with voices and singing but there's often some there's there's some factor from which everybody feels reverberations for the rest of the I really love that you said that and I, I couldn't have found the right word and and actually I will say it, that's literally true in that film because they all have been through um, some harrowing experiences uh, as a result of living in China in the years that they did what, what here people call the cultural revolution yeah but there it's just like the period of Mao and the period of, of a kind of uh, resistance to to any kind of confrontation with this 
powers that give you the state. But that, that and these are people who've carried that for decades. And you, I think the reverberation is true. But I, I, working with this with Stephen Vitiello, who's a sound artist, and he did the music for uh, music sound art. We we collaborated. I, I wouldn't just say music. He doesn't even call himself a composer. He makes sound pieces. Um, so he did the sound music sections for that film for um, the Washington Society for Tip of My Tongue. I don't know if you saw that. Um, and uh, for a film about a father who, so actually uh, he just released two albums from um, my films, but they're all much longer takes. It's maybe three minutes. And in my film, they're like 20 seconds or something like that. It's very unintrusive, though. I mean, again, you talked about not wanting to contextualize, and one of the ways that you can be most manipulative, I guess, is through music. I know. Well, actually, I have friends kind of in the experimental world, including my husband, and he's always very suspicious of music because people tend to kind of depend on it and, and for creating mood. But I feel like I'm in conversation with Stephen, and, and he allows for this other really um resonant and reverberable space of reverberation actually back and forth from, from image to picture not just through his sound um called them echoes or something the film your day is my night focuses on a group of immigrants in new york most of them from china trying to eke out a new life in the often bewildering metropolis among them are a nightclub owner and a very fine singer, as well as two retired seamstresses. It is a film in which every gesture has meaning and every character bears the scars of a tormented past, whilst interacting with their fellows through personal joys and conflicts with great love and respect. All of these figures live together in shared accommodation that is designed to be temporary, although some can stay for quite a considerable amount of time. It's an incredibly touching film, appropriately because of the way the film focuses on hands, but it has an emotional power that consistently avoids manipulating the audience and always treats its subjects as real human beings, never as mere archetypes. Rather, we become observers of figures inhabiting a small space in a big city, the profound humanity of the figures in the film and the film's maker blending masterfully and to extraordinary effect. It leaves an impression that will linger in the viewer's head long after the credits roll. You're talking about being self-critical in, in film about a father. Who? How does the process of assembling a film tend to work for you? It kind of depends. Um, like, that film took... 35 years because I just kept working on it and I was intimidated about the thought of finishing it and things kept changing in my family. And also, as I mentioned before, I was resistant to the images because I thought they were so compromised. And I also felt a lot of shame in, on the level of its content. So I, I just any, would allow anything to get in my way. Um, but other films are much more... Um, impetuous, let's say, like I made a film um, in February, which was a response to the attack on the US Capitol, epistolary, it's letter to Jean Vigo. So that was a quote commission, not that I've had very many in my life, but it was a commission from the Punta de Vista Film Festival. 
And um, so I only had a short time to make it. And I think that it served the film well. You know, it may, I, I had to be resourceful on the level of looking for material pretty much from the, the big archive of the world. So I pulled images from, uh, I typed in the words, how to behave. And all these funny phrases came up that I just loved. And then I used those. They were like how to's for children or what to do when you go to a party, how to behave at a party. And I just like gleaned all of that because I was interested in how our culture and I mean the big culture suggests we should behave. Because I was thinking those guys who broke into the Capitol and committed a horrible acts of violence heinous acts of violence, just didn't know how to behave. And, but it's, I didn't want to be, I'm not trying to say I was funny about it. I, I was just trying to be like an, analytical. And then I was thinking about Jean Vigo because it was a letter to Jean Vigo. Have you seen Zero, Zero for Conduct? No. no. Oh, it's, it's so great. It's like from 1933, it's now called a classic. And it's, a, it's his movie, it, it's, the, the, it's called Zero for Conduct because it's about these little boys um, wage a kind of revolution against their teachers. So they got okay. zero yeah. on their report card, but they don't hurt anybody. It's beautifully anti-authoritarian, but it's like a, it's sort of like investigation or claim. It's an act of civil, civil disobedience. Mm. And the film itself is a bit like an act of civil disobedience in the ter- in case of an investigation of a flame, isn't it? Yeah, I guess you're right. I'm not, you know, I think about like, for example, graffiti, um, as a form of disobedience. And some forms of graffiti, I think, don't really hurt people. They are, like, can be very exquisite forms of expression. Like, that's different. Yeah, I quite like graffiti for that reason. You too. The critic Jonathan Romney comments of Film About a Father Who that as the completion of what Sachs sees as a trilogy following States of Unbelonging in 2005 and The Last Happy Day in 2009, the film might indeed be best understood as one chapter in a continuing stream of work by an experimental, highly personal filmmaker. There is much in this statement, I think, as the body of Lynn's work taken as a whole does indeed create a sense of a series of personal investigations, which defy classifications of experimental film or even documentary, thanks to their thoughtful and inviting sensibility. That said, taken individually, each of Sachs's films leaves an impression that is entirely its own, so whatever you see, it will be very difficult to confuse it with another Lynn Sachs film, and yet unmistakably still a Lynn Sachs work. You mentioned that analogue film does tend to creep in, but is, and and there's a bit of hybrid between digital and video and analogue forms. Almost all my movies have some is is the medium therefore important on some level? Uh, it's very important. I, I mean, just in a kind of, on the level of the texture and the pleasure I get, I, I appreciate high definition and I like the level of detail because you asked about detail, like especially yeah. in that microcosmic way, but I don't necessarily love how high definition looks when you're looking at something broad or from a distance. And I like the way that you lose the detail with 16 millimeter, but you get 
these rich colors and you get something that is a bit more transcendent in a way rather than just visual information. You know, we always talk about um, pixels, how much precision you have and the more pixels, the better. But like one of my favorite shots in a film about a father who is, is a shot that I believe was probably obtained on a high camera and the color over the many years has disappeared and it's just a silhouette. It's evocative. And I think there's, an evo there's something to be said for that. And I think also audiences are a little, have a tendency to yawn at too much precision and high definition, you know, and like the, that the more detail is better. Um, so, you know, when you go back to something like Kurt Prim's films and you get, you just get something more raw and more connected to the, in his face, for sure, the body and. Um, as well as consciously withholding, I suppose. Consciously, oh, that's beautifully put, mm. yeah. Um, so, and I like with my, my Bolex, which is right downstairs, actually, um, I like that it only shoots for 28 seconds and I like that you can only shoot image with it. So you have to be very, very attentive to image. And I, like, I wish people would take their video cam cameras out and, um, and collect and intentionally collect sound because we always talk about high definition as being image, but actually the microphones on those cameras are very good, but people forget they're omnidirectional and they think, eh, we're just going to get this kind of broad sound, but actually that's, what we used to like to call wild sound and it's, but the minute you, I mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily advocating for putting the lens cap on. I actually think it's not a bad idea and just to listen in a more directed way. How to enjoy an experimental film. You know, I guess how to enjoy experimental film is to release yourself from any expectation of what a movie is supposed to do. You know, to release yourself to an experimental, experimental film is to say that I'm going into an experience and it's in a language I don't know. It might, it's not German, it's not Chinese, it's experimental film. But the difference is that when you're talking about a, a communal language, or, you know, you, everyone in a certain society speaks the same language. But here we're saying, not only does each artist speak a different language, but each film has its own language. And what its only responsibility is to us as viewers is to convey its language such that we can enter it and be in dialogue with it in some way. It might be visceral, it might be intellectual, it might be emotional, it might be just aesthetic. But if, if there's enough there in an experimental film, you will be in conversation with it in, on some level. Um, but the problem is that people think from minute one, they need to know the language and have seen it before. And that guarantee that they saw it before or experience, not that they saw that movie, but we have templates. Like I think there's, there's a template for making so many different kinds of films that are not experimental films. 
But by saying that no experimental film follows a template, it's, it comes with the expectation that you're going to take a risk and try to be involved with this aesthetic experience on its own terms and be open to learning it. And that's why I think it shares a lot with poetry. Some people say, I don't like poetry. It's probably the not the same people, but the same sensibility. I don't like poetry because it, it makes me need it on its own terms. And then I don't know what to do with it. But if you just kind of release yourself, you might enjoy it. And actually, I have a friend who's, who believes that boredom is actually extremely important. Being in moments of um, tedium, just like a little bit, and then you, you start to be open, like you just start to be a blank slate. It's like when children say, I'm bored. I like to say, you are really lucky. You're fucking lucky to be bored because adults are way too filled up with the clutter of life. Boredom actually means you're, you're a vessel, you're an open, you're a vacuum. And if you're a vacuum, there's room for things to enter. So three cheers for boredom. I think there's so much fear that uh, these days of boredom. Like, I think people are more intimidated by boredom than they are of experimental things. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, don't forget to hit the subscribe button. We'll be back with more very soon. My deep gratitude to Lynn Sachs for her generosity with her time and for allowing me to include sound clips from some of her films. Thanks also to Gabriel Ness who composed the music for this show and of course to you for listening. Please do tune in again next time. 